Hello, and welcome to The Faculty Chronicles, TFC, a podcast sponsored by the Turo Center on Excellence in Teaching and Learning and the Office of the Provost. Your TFC podcast hosts are me, Professor Gina Bardwell, and Dr. Elizabeth Uni. Across academic disciplines, Turo faculty are producing great work, and the Faculty Chronicles wants you to hear all about it. TFC podcasts will highlight faculty chatting about their favorite project in research, teaching, learning, science, medicine, technology, and so much more. So let's get busy building community, connection, and continuous conversation tour-wide. Our next Faculty Chronicle guest is on deck waiting to chat. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Faculty Chronicles podcast. I'm Elizabeth Uni, the co-host of this podcast, chair and associate professor of the Department of Social, Behavioral, and Administrative Sciences at the Toro College of Pharmacy in New York. Today, our guest is Sarah Berman. She is the professor of law and assistant dean of academic excellence and bar success with the Toro Law College. In her position, she designs and teaches courses and programs to promote student success from year one of law school through licensure. She's also focusing on creating and directing a center for professional formation and licensure. In addition to teaching, Sarah is also involved in several scholarship activities. She has written various articles and papers and she has also written several books, one of which is Bar Exam Success, A Comprehensive Guide. Welcome, Sarah, to the podcast. So let's start with your book, Bar Exam Success, A Comprehensive Guide. Why did you decide to write this book? Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, wonderful to be here. Uh, this book was born out of 30 years of teaching and counseling and mentoring and motivating students and seeing patterns. And most of it is firsthand experience translated into generalities that seem to apply to everyone in one fashion or another. What is so exciting to me is that I did have some colleagues who are social scientists read the book and go in and just about every exercise establish research and studies that supported some of the underlying philosophy behind why these are successful. And one of the things I'll, I'll talk about I hope a little bit more with you is what I call reframing. And this is just something I came up with. And I know I didn't come up with it. It's out there in the world. And I've done a lot of research since. But when I was a young professor, it just intuitively came to me. And I think I had always done it in my life. And I certainly did it as a parent, too. You know, the sort of, oh, I have to take this test. No, 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 no. You get to take this test. It is a privilege. You cannot buy a ticket to go in and sit for the bar exam or, or the MCAT or, or any of the other big high stakes exams. You 
earn your place there by years of putting in the prerequisites and doing all the studying over years, decades for most professionals. Uh, so I, I like to stress that, and that's a prime example of something that I have now come to realize that um, there is an enormous amount of science behind the process of reframing. And it's particularly powerful for non-traditional students. Um, the book itself, while it's focused on law and law students and the bar exam, what I came up with was a sequence or a system, a progression, if you will, that I think applies to every major academic achievement in any field. And, and I'll just run through the, you know, the steps in the system and you'll see how universally applicable they are. But they are, of course, the chapters in the book. And, and one is to set your goal. And I call that finding your why. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so important to know why you're investing this time, right? Set mm -hmm. your goal. Related is commit to success. And that's something that deals with calendaring and putting it in print. And if you write it or type it and post it somewhere, it's a reality that it isn't when you just think it in mm -hmm. your brain. The next one, again, obvious in our modern society, reduce distractions. I have a whole chapter on reducing distractions. Then comes developing your plan for success. And I like to analogize, so a lot of our students plan events, you know, they plan weddings, they plan other big events, but they don't think to plan for a high stakes exam. But I like to say, you know, your bar exam or your medical boards or whatever your licensing exam is, that's your Broadway show. That's your Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. That's something you don't just whip out. Yep. You plan for. Um, the next chapter, five, is get and use quality expert help. And that's one of the pieces that I just love because we have so many students who seem to seek quick fixes and sort of wisdom on the internet. And I try to tell them that it's wonderful and important to get help, like a good review course. But the operative word is good and reliable because getting help that is not reliable actually undermines your mm -hmm. success efforts. So a few more, and again, you can see how this is a progression that just applies to anything. The next one is about uh, making your work schedule and working steadily to achieve your goal. Chapter seven, the next one is enlist your troops mm -hmm. and lose the naysayers. Oh, and this one also is so important because we have a lot of people who have wonderful support networks. Yeah. We also have students who have detractors, whether they're friends who don't think they need to study that hard and want them to go out, whether they're family who don't support this particular goal. Mm -hmm. It is so important during that high stakes preparation period to really rally your supporters and keep them close. And just tell everyone who's not the best supporter, 
you know, we'll schedule something a month from now. Yep. You, you don't have to be rude, but you just kind of delay so that you prioritize your own studies. And then the last couple, uh, chapter eight is shape up your plan. So that's where you, you're kind of closer to the event and you refine things. You refine your schedule, you refine your study techniques because now you know what works. Then uh, chapter nine is the home stretch where you eliminate any distractions and you go for the gold. And then chapter 10, I think you'll like this one, Elizabeth, is celebrate your achievement, acknowledge your success, and set your next goal. Wow, that is really beautiful, the way you have outlined the whole thing. So the way you have written the book, one can say that, well, we can just tell the students, here is a book, buy it, or we can make it available in the library and say, here is a book available in the library, go pick it up and read it. So how can faculty, right, help students for these high stake exams, especially for a school like Toro, where we have a lot of non-traditional students, and the VU said the distractions are much higher, even if not social distractions, family responsibilities, jobs, all those things come. So how can faculty help students with these high stake exams? So that's a wonderful question. Uh, I think the first and foremost that faculty can do is to admit that they are stressful, to mm. own it, to, uh, that validates the student's struggles. And then of course we have to characterize struggle as a positive, right? It's not a negative. Again, you get to do this, it's an opportunity. Um, preparation and planning are key. Faculty must stress that studying is a job, not a lottery. And what I mean by that is the outcomes are dependent on skill and preparation, not luck. Mm -hmm. uh, but for the most part, I think people need to feel that what they're doing is worthwhile and important. Yes. Um, and uh, the other thing I'll say, a couple other things about faculty. So one of the biggest stressors in high stakes exams, and I think we see this in finals too, is the outsized importance, right? The student's line would be, my whole future rides on this, right? And that creates nerves. Well, this is very similar to what athletes, you know, again, to use that Olympic comparison. So what are their coping tools? Their coping tools are focused on the process and the practice. And then the big game becomes just another practice. So yeah. you're prepared and you flow into it. Yes. Critically important. Mm -hmm. um, the, the last thing, and I want to talk about this a little bit in context too, is to embrace nerves and anxiety. And I know that may sound controversial and students, but honestly, those nerves kick in adrenaline and there's all kinds of physical responses that if channeled positively, if mm -hmm. leveraged, they can turn into power for exams and for other high stakes environments. 
And my phrase that I've written in the book that I like to tell students they like it, I call it the three Ps. Turn panic into power, not paralysis. Oh, that's good. That's very good. So, Sarah, it is, it's really nice to hear how you are saying why faculty should be invested in this and how can faculty help the students. But one of the things that we often hear from faculty is the lack of time, right? So the faculty is called in to do a lot of things in addition to teaching, the scholarship responsibilities. They are called in to do a lot of service, both at their college and at the university and to the community. And so when do or how can faculty find time and motivation to motivate the students to take these high stakes exams rather than saying, hey, I did my job, I taught you, now it's your turn, it's your exam. Instead of saying that, how can faculty find time and motivation to work with these students to help them pass these high-stake exams? Well, we have to, we have to, we simply have to, because we need to meet students where they are. And what I mean by that is most of us at Toro, have learning outcomes. And, and, and when we teach, we expect people at the end of the semester, year, course, or program mm -hmm. to be able to perform certain skills. Right. But they come in at very different levels. Mm -hmm. They come in at different skill levels. They come in with different time that's disposable to them, depending on if they have dependent care responsibilities or jobs or other things. They also come in with a different sense of professional identity. And what I mean by that is some come in with the sort of, uh, to graduate schools, let's say, with an with a, with a undergraduate or high school frame of mind where the professor is the teacher and the focus is on the teaching mm -hmm. and I, the student, absorb. But we want to flip the switch and say, we are a teaching and learning community. Right. And the onus is on the student as well as the faculty member. And the ideal, the ideal of a professional is to be self-driven. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, again, if you have a case, if you have a client, if you have a patient, and you don't know exactly how to treat them or how to handle the problem, you, you don't give up, you research it. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. That's what a professional does. And so we need to help transform them and bring them over this threshold where they come in at different stages and we need to make them go out with similar skills of proficiency. Now, I'm dodging the question a little bit. You asked about how professors make time. And I, and I wanna really hit that. So first of all, I think that after a while when teaching, and this is what I realized when I wrote my book, you tend to see people fall into, I don't know, four or five buckets. You know, somebody isn't, performing because they're not putting in enough time. Mm -hmm. Someone else isn't performing because they don't have enough confidence. Someone else isn't performing because 
they didn't understand the assignment. And if you, if you can kind of come up with those generalities, you can make very helpful recordings, short podcasts, if you will, just short videos or audios where you can embed them in Canvas or, you know, in certain places in the course that kind of, or FAQs, you know, but, but to do them in ways that hit different people's issues. And then the student can follow up with you if what you said didn't make sense. And that really creates economies of scale with your time. Right. Uh, the other thing is individualized feedback on any kind of assessment. You know, by definition, individualized feedback is meeting students where they are. And while it's hard to make time to do that, that's an expectation that a lot of us have anyway. And if we think of that as, well, that is our moment. So, yeah, uh, you know, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially when you said meeting the students where they are, you know, we all have a standard expected outcome, but they all come in at various levels and skills and meeting them where they are because in the outcome, we want them all at the same level. So that's so important. So we started talking about um, some of the stressors students have, especially when taking the high stakes exam. Can you give some examples of the stressors that you have seen uh, in your 30 years of education uh, that, that works as a hindrance to their success in these high stakes exams? Yeah, so that's, a, again, a wonderful question. And I've done uh, years of research really on what I call barriers to bar pass. Although lately I've started calling them challenges rather than barriers mm -hmm. so that students don't feel like they actually prevent, but they just pose some challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe that these are similar in any standardized test, again, and in any academic area. So um, they, they are in no particular order, time challenges. And again, those can stem from someone being inefficient about their time to someone having, you know, dependent children and dependent parents and a job. Yeah. So it, it's not a judgment and not a value judgment. It's simply an objective statement that to do this kind of work takes time. And it's something that you can work with students with calendaring uh, and so forth and so on. The next and sort of very obvious challenge is knowledge challenges. And there I'll just say that there's a lot of students who have superficial knowledge when they need to have mastery. And they, they don't always see that disconnect, mm -hmm. right? Uh, assessments can really help. Yep. And uh, that's, again, a burden that is shared by both student and faculty. Hand in hand with knowledge are skills barriers, but they're mm -hmm. a little different uh, because they may stem from insufficient foundations. And that's something that, again, really needs to be identified and addressed. And I don't think we're doing students any favors if we see really fundamental skills deficiencies and we don't send them to, you know, the centers that we all have in our various schools to help um, with some of these foundational skills. 
another one that a lot of people wouldn't put up there, but I put way up there are financial challenges. Mm-hmm. And um, this can range from insecurity or scarcity about rent, mm-hmm. food, yeah. basic, basic living, which absolutely interferes with one's academic success and right. is a huge stressor. Mm-hmm. Um, acad- uh, financial fears relating to academics can be a fear of not getting a job when you graduate or not getting a job that's going to pay off your student loans. Mm-hmm. And, and a good remedy for that is a meeting with the financial aid office in your particular school, because a lot of that comes from fear of the unknown. A um, couple others, health barriers. Like we don't think about that too often either, but insufficient sleep, suboptimal diets. Another one that I always tell students, especially in graduate schools, get your eyes tested. Mm, interesting. So often students will begin graduate school or even college with perfect eyesight. Mm. And somewhere in the middle, that diminishes. And if they haven't gone to the eye doctor and gotten glasses or lenses or whatever, they may experience headaches and not know why. They may have trouble reading. And um, it, it may also just fatigue the eyes uh, in a way that just getting a pair of glasses and going for that console. So, so those are some things uh, that are helpful there. Uh, the, the last one I, I'd like to focus on just a little bit, and you mentioned non-traditional students, is it's a, I, I put a, a couple things in one, but I think you'll, you'll know why. Um, stigma internalized bias, stereotype threat. Mm-hmm. And these are, you know, beliefs that someone's identification with a particular group will necessarily predict success or failure. Right. And usually it's the fear of failure. Yeah. Uh, and that can be overwhelming. But faculty, by acknowledging And by providing a space for students to just even articulate those concerns can do wonders to diminish that anxiety. And I want to just mention one other thing, a study I read that had tremendous impact on those particular issues and test anxiety. Mm -hmm. And that is, to have students before an exam, so before a final, before a midterm, before an assessment, do a five to 10 minute free write on what they're worried about, on what their goals are, just anything to get it out. Yeah. And it seems to do wonders. That's good, interesting. Yeah, and I, you know, there, there's some really good science that was done, a very comprehensive uh, study that was done and showed particularly with historically underrepresented groups that that had a, a, a significant impact on um, successful outcomes on what was otherwise a stressful exam. Wow, very, very interesting. Sarah, as we're coming to a close to this um, uh, episode, is there anything else that you would like to tell our faculty about, um, you know, high stakes exams, 
stresses, what they can do, anything more that you would like to give us a last tip to them? <clears throat> yeah. The most important thing is to indicate and show that you believe in growth mindsets, awesome. that, that you believe that they can succeed because all of the science indicates that that is one of the biggest factors. If students believe that their skills are, are, are immutable, they're either smart or not, that's where they're going to stay. But if they believe and you indicate that they have growth potential, they will rise to that occasion. Um, another really important thing is the reframing that I mentioned. You know, I'm no good at multiple choice questions. You just jump right in. If you hear mm -hmm. somebody say that, you say, no, you're working on multiple choice questions and you're getting better every day. And you just, just constantly stop and interrupt the negative self-talk and have the student reframe. And you can do it at first. And then you just, all you have to do is, if you get them used to it, you just say, reframe. Mm -hmm. And then they know what you're talking about and they'll do it themselves. So those are really the, the, the two most important things. And then concretely, I think with, with exams, give them tools that they can use during the exam. Not just like a lot of people say, oh, you know, chamomile tea, a hot bath. Well, that's all great for getting people to sleep at night. But breathing techniques or visualization of something positive or standing up and stretching before the exam. These are tools that they can put in their pocket to give them confidence in the moment. And I think that, that we need to make sure that we give them both. Awesome, awesome. So Sarah, I am walking away with three things from you. The first one is that believe in your students and indicate to them that you believe in them. Second, teach them how to reframe their thoughts so that they become more of a positive thinking. And third, meeting them where they are so that we can work with them towards the final goal. All right, well, thank you so much, Sarah, for being a guest on our show. And uh, it was really wonderful talking to you. And thank you to our listeners uh, for taking time to listen to, a, to another episode of the Faculty Chronicles podcast. See you next time. And thank you all so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Faculty Chronicles, TFC, Turo's podcast featuring the projects and work of faculty throughout the Turo College and University system. TFC is sponsored by the Office of the Provost and Kettle, the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. We hope you like what you heard and will keep listening. So join us next time on the Faculty Chronicles as we highlight and share faculty achievements that build community, connection, and continuous conversation.